0: And Welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we are talking about artificial intelligence and its relationship to values, its capabilities to solve global problems, but also its dark side and our ability to control it. And I'm absolutely thrilled to be welcoming a very special guest to help us make sense of this today. We are joined by the AI pioneer, Professor Stuart Russell OBE, who is not just a professor of electrical engineering and computer sciences and holder of the Smith Zade Chair in Engineering at the University of California at Berkeley. He's also the co-author of the, the standard textbook on artificial intelligence, And I think even more important than that, he's started to shape a really important global conversation about the relationship of public policy and artificial intelligence. He's gone down an extraordinary journey from pioneering this science to devoting a lot of his life to working out how to control it and telling people about the dangers which it unleashes. And he also has written a really compelling book called Human Compatible on AI and the problem of control. So thank you very much for, for joining me, Stuart. It's a pleasure, Mark. So why don't we start at the beginning? We've got a lot of very clever people who listen to this podcast, but I think most of them are more familiar with non-artificial intelligence. So for kind of lay audience, can you explain what artificial intelligence actually is and, and how powerful you think it is at the moment and what it could turn into in the future?
1: So artificial intelligence has been around for 70 odd years. And the basic idea, of course, is to make machines intelligent. At the beginning, there was a lot of uncertainty about what that would mean. Would it mean that they should behave and operate like humans? Or should it mean something more abstract and mathematical? And in fact, the abstract and mathematical definition, I think, won out. And in the early days... People thought about this very much in the context of logical reasoning and plans that were guaranteed to achieve goals. So we had uh, search algorithms and planning algorithms that could find a route from A to B on a map, that could find a checkmate in a chess problem. And gradually, we've moved more and more into the real world where we have to take into account uncertainty. Uh, We have trade-offs. But the the same principle uh, applies, that the AI system is expected to achieve its objectives by By carrying out actions and the technology has advanced dramatically in the last decade or so. The key development, which we call deep learning, was made in various bits and pieces during the 1990s. But until we started to scale it up, I would say it was not understood how powerful this technique could be until around 2012, when it was applied both to speech recognition and image recognition, with quite remarkable results. And since then, we've been riding the tiger, so to speak, uh, as the technology turns out to have all kinds of uses, you know, everything from machine translation, which I just used this morning to try to pay off a mortgage in France, to something I did last week where I was giving a talk in the House of Lords, and I thought it would be fun to generate a picture of the members of the House of Lords wrestling in the mud. So I asked one of the, the latest generation of generative AI models to just give me a picture of that, and I did quite a good job.
0: So in a way what you're saying is that as it goes forward it's become part of almost every single aspect of our life from you know banking and, and healthcare to education to a lot of our transactions searching googling things They're all kind of products of of artificial intelligence.
1: Yeah I think probably the the use that we make AI most frequently is, is exactly the search engine. We've now, over the years, got used to simply asking a question. Often the answer is just a pointer to a list of pages where uh, the search engine thinks the answer might be found, but often it actually gives you the answer directly. And I think this is approaching now half of all queries coming into the search engine are answered directly because the search engine is gradually becoming more like a knowledge base and less like an index into uh, all the web pages. So, in a sense, the search engines are starting to process and understand the web pages of the world and be able to answer questions directly. The other big place we use AI without even noticing at all is in social media. So, everything that's fed to us by our social media platform, whether it's YouTube recommending the next video to watch or Twitter. Organizing your feed or Facebook, putting stuff in your news to read. All of these algorithms are machine learning algorithms that have been trained by observing literally billions of users and what they click on and what they don't click on. And then trying to predict how to generate the most clicks by sending you the right stuff.
0: So we're going to talk quite soon about some of the, the sort of dangers around AI. But before we, we go into that, what is your biggest hope for AI? What do you think kind of most powerful things AI could do for us?
1: I think the two areas that could have the biggest beneficial impact, and you won't be surprised that I'm not saying advertising, although that is probably at the moment the biggest financial benefit from AI. But I think the areas that really matter are healthcare and education, because these these are areas that are extremely labor intensive and as a result becoming more and more expensive. And as income inequality seems to be increasing in most Western countries, what that means is that those services are less and less affordable to people in the lower echelons of the income spectrum and that's really unfortunate. Plus, there are literally billions of people who have essentially no access to healthcare at all. So, to give you one example, the per capita healthcare budget in a country like Chad is less than $10 a year. And if you compare that to, you know, one one painkilling pill in, a, in an American hospital is up to $80 or $100. So, it's, in a sense, there is no healthcare in a lot of countries.
0: So you think that you'll have diagnostics done by algorithms all over the world and that that would be the kind of main way that a lot of people get healthcare rather than depending on expensive um, visits to the doctors that they could find out what's wrong with them through various digital devices.
1: Well, I think there'll be a mixture. And I think one one of the models that's being rolled out right now is that you have um, nurses who operate at a district level. The nurses are backed up by... AI systems that can provide expert guidance because it's really the expertise that's very expensive. Uh, It's expensive to access and it's expensive for countries to produce it, training a doctor. In many of these countries, if you train a doctor, they immediately leave for a a wealthier country, right? Because the wealthier countries also have trouble uh, training doctors. So it's expertise that's in short supply and AI can increasingly provide that. So you've got this hybrid model, which I think can be quite effective. Education, again, in many countries There may be a couple of years of state-funded education, but often in very dysfunctional circumstances or sometimes with no teacher at all. And then after that, you have to pay for it. And that's beyond the reach of of most of the people. So and again, the the problem is it's very expensive to train a teacher. People with the knowledge and ability to teach calculus, for example, are in short supply and can find much better paid jobs in other sectors. So AI, if we put in more effort to developing it, uh, we would be In a much better position, because we know from experiments that an expert human tutor can double or triple the rate of learning of a child compared to a classroom environment. So if we could replicate that process, uh, we, we could bring most kids in the world to college level by the age of 10 or 11.
0: So the big excitement for the last few years amongst experts on AI has not been all about these sort of specific uses of AI, but the whole idea of generalized AI. Do you want to explain a bit what that is and how exciting it is and how close we are to achieving it?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So... I mean, general purpose AI means AI systems that are not built for one specific task, like playing chess or diagnosing diseases from x-rays or anything like that. They are generally intelligent in more or less the same way that human beings are, meaning that with some time to learn, some exposure to training, they can become competent at pretty much any task. And AI systems have many advantages over humans. So, for example, they can read everything the human race has ever written before lunch. They have processing speeds that may be a million times faster than the human brain. And they um, they also have communication bandwidth, so they can exchange information with each other, uh, you know, with millions of humans simultaneously. So they have huge advantages that mean that if we do understand how to create general purpose AI, then almost certainly they'll far exceed human capabilities in pretty much every area. So if you think about what that means from the point of view of the economy, for example, rather than think about sort of, you know, a robot sitting in your house that's very brainy, think about a global, uh, as it were, intelligence utility that has spread around the world lots of Physical embodiments that it can control, and then you would be able to call on it just like we, by plugging things into an outlet, we can call on electricity generating capacity that you know is on you know a regional or approaching a global scale and use that electricity for anything we want. And you'd be able to tap into this intelligence utility and its physical embodiments for anything you want. You know, if you're in a village and you need a school, basically, you would take out your cell phone and, and say, "Hey, we need a school over here." And the cost of providing those services. Is, is in many cases prohibitive to build a school you need architects and contractors and surveyors and you know people who write the permits and, and organize the logistics of supplying all the materials and then you need all the construction people and all of that is really really expensive. but if all the people are taken out of that whole supply chain then you're really down to you know the costs of raw materials and, and you know fairly small cost for you know for renting, the construction robots and the delivery robots and so on. So cost is is taken out of the entire supply chain to the point where I think we could deliver a high standard of living to everybody on Earth. So that would be marvelous. And if you do a back of the envelope calculation, it, it would be about a tenfold increase in GDP. And then, if you calculate the net present value, it would be about somewhere between ten and fifteen quadrillion dollars,
0: even after COVID and uh, financial crisis.
1: Even after that, yeah. Uh, so, and about the same number of pounds, apparently. So,
0: uh, by the time it happens, the pound will be, will be worth rather less than a dollar.
1: So that gives you a you know, I would say a lower bound on the value because there are lots of other things you could do in addition, right? You could talk about having a much better healthcare system or education system than currently exists. AI is probably going to greatly accelerate the rate of scientific discovery and medical discoveries and so on. So there would, there would be a lot of extra stuff on top of that.
0: Where does that come from, that estimate?
1: Well, so the if you take a tenfold increase in GDP, that's that goes from about 75 trillion.
0: To... Where's tenfold increase in GDP?
1: Oh, that's just saying if everybody in the world had a standard of living at the 90th percentile of Americans. So, you know, upper middle class, comfortable life with what many people in, in advanced economies now have started to take for granted. So if you think about that prize, right, and then it, it creates an enormous momentum. And yeah, I mean, as we move towards it, you know, each broadening of capabilities opens up many, many more applications. And so the rate of investment
0: actually is going to accelerate uh, as we move forward. So this is one of these moving targets that people always talk about being just around the corner. How close are we actually to, to general purpose AI in 2022 in your estimation?
1: Uh, well, I'm still sticking to uh, what I what I said under strict Chatham House rules at a meeting in Davos, but someone who will remain nameless at the meeting immediately sent it off um, and it appeared in a Daily Telegraph headline about 20 minutes later. Anyway, so what I said was, you know, strictly off the record in the lifetime of my children, although, of course, they may, they may live much longer than me due to medical advances thanks to ai <laughs> they so at that time i think they were 12 to 20 so roughly speaking you know sometime in this century <laughs> yeah the the daily telegraph headline was sociopathic robots to take over the world in the next generation
0: so maybe that gives us a kind of segue into 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 what you're worried about. I, I like to talk about the geopolitical implications of, you know, how we regulate algorithmic systems and the various AI bills and things like that. But before we do that, maybe because you've got this absolutely amazingly powerful metaphor that you use for King Midas. Maybe we can use that as a way into thinking about some of the, the downsides. Do you want to explain that?
1: So the issue with general purpose AI, I mean, systems that are more generally intelligent than human beings, is that our intelligence is what gives us power over the world, right? And power over all the other species. And, uh, you know, as Alan Turing pointed out in 1951, we should have to expect the machines to take control. And that's a very natural response, right? We're making things more powerful than us. How on earth are we going to have power over things more powerful than us forever? right? So that's the question, and to try to answer that, I think Turing thought there had there was no answer right? There would inevitably be a takeover by the machines. If you think about that process, right the process of making AI better and better produces outcomes that are worse and worse. Something's wrong there, right? We don't you know if we think about cars, right? if we make cars better and better, we don't think of the outcomes as getting worse and worse. We think. Okay, they're safer, they use less petrol, they cost less, maybe they go faster, that might be a little bit worse, but mostly making cars better would be a good thing. So what's the problem with making AI better? And I think the problem has to do with the fact that the way we think about AI systems, as I mentioned at the beginning, systems whose actions can be expected to achieve their objectives. And the problem is that we don't know how to specify those objectives correctly. And this is where King Midas comes in we've known this problem for thousands of years, right? So King Midas said, I want everything I touch to turn to gold. And the gods who are playing the role of the AI in this case, basically take that very literally as an object lesson, I think, to King Midas and to everybody else. And he realizes that when he tries to drink, his water turns to gold and he can't drink it. When he tries to eat, his food turns to gold and he can't eat it. Uh, When he touches his family, his, his daughter turns to gold and So, and then he basically dies in misery and starvation. And there are lots of legends like this. Many cultures have isomorphic stories. Sorcerer's Apprentice is another good example, bewitching the brooms to fetch water, but not specifying how much water and when to stop. And of course, in that story, the apprentice tries to chop the brooms into pieces. And of course, the brooms need to keep fetching water. So the pieces grow into new brooms. And then now there are you know 16 times as many brooms fetching water and things go from bad to worse and and I think that story you know we see it in a lot of science fiction films so in 2001 a space odyssey you know HAL is the machine that controls the spaceship and HAL has a mission and the mission seems to be incompatible with what the astronauts on the spaceship actually want to do and and so HAL has to simply kill the astronauts one by one in order to preserve the mission which it's been given so What my research in the last nearly 10 years now is about how do we get out of this problem? It seems inherent to the way we have conceptualized AI systems from the beginning. And we're starting to see it in practice. I think social media is a good example where we give the learning algorithms an objective, which is to maximize the number of clicks that are generated by users. And they've learned how to do that. And you might think, okay, well, in order to get people to click on things, I'll have to send them things they're interested in. You know, videos they like, music they like, news stories that they find relevant to their interests. You know, and it might sound quite benign, but we pretty quickly found out that that wasn't the solution to the maximization problem that we set for the algorithm. So for example, the algorithms actually amplify clickbait, right? In fact, the word clickbait is precisely articles that achieve a high click rate even if the content is actually misleading, distorted, uninteresting, unrelated to the headline. And then, you know, there's the filter bubble that people now only see stuff that the algorithm already knows they're going to click on, so they never read anything that isn't something they're already excited about. And so they live in a narrower and narrower universe of information. But in fact, the solution isn't any of those things. The solution from the algorithm's point of view is that It will change who you are in order to turn you into a person whose click behavior is easier to predict because that way it can then send you the content that it will know that you're going to click on. So manipulation by a series of decisions that the algorithm makes on content, so it's sort of a a long-term propaganda campaign that's precisely tailored to each individual and that adapts as the individual responds is the optimal solution to the optimization problem that we've given to the algorithm. And you could argue about, well, what constitutes predictability in a person, but one solution seems to be extremism, that people with extreme views are very predictable in what kind of content that they will consume. So at least anecdotally, people are pointing to social media-induced polarization and degradation of public debate and democracy in lots of countries around the world. So, this is an early warning. I think we're not quite at the King Midas stage where we're all going to die in misery and starvation, but it's an early warning from really, really simple algorithms, right? These algorithms are so stupid in some sense, right? They don't even know that human beings exist. They don't know that we have brains or minds or political opinions. They don't understand the content of the articles that they're sending. You're just a sequence of clicks on a sequence of content, and they learn, okay, if you're that sequence, then this is the next article I should send you in order to generate the future sequence that I want. So if you had better algorithms that did understand more about human psychology, then they would be much more effective and the outcome would be far worse for us. So it's a good example of where these things go wrong.
0: Obviously, given how much of our democracy is is now taking place on these platforms has become a absolutely critical subject for debate in lots of places and as you say it's maybe the cutting edge it's the place where people are most aware of it and there are now all sorts of attempts to think about how some probably more successful than others what do you think of the way that those debates are being held do you think that people have grasped the seriousness of the problem are there examples of governments thinking about this in in the right way or do you think that they're barking up the wrong tree
1: so i think first of all Most people have grasped the problem of clickbait amplifying content that is inflammatory. I don't think they've understood the long-term manipulation process that the algorithms have figured out and are probably carrying out. And I think one of the biggest problems is the lack of transparency. So we know, for example, that Facebook was aware of this problem several years ago from internal disclosures. But... From the outside, they certainly weren't admitting to it, and there was almost no access to the kind of data that would enable you to track how individual users' tastes and interests are evolving over time as they use the system. So, you know, under this hypothesis of manipulation, what you would expect to see is that people who start out a little bit to the left would would gradually be turned further and further towards extreme left-wing or extreme eco-terrorist kind of content. and People on the right would be gradually moving towards more extreme right-wing content. So you would see a kind of a divergence, but we don't have access to the data to show that. We're just starting to negotiate agreements in the last few months that would allow external researchers to have access to the kind of data that uh, we could use to answer these questions. Some governments, I think Taiwan, for example, is Insisting that the recommender systems are actually engineered to promote unifying content, to promote content that's of interest to both sides, to try to bring people together. Again, I think that's difficult to do without access to lots of data and being able to experiment with different algorithms to see which ones would work. And, of course, is Facebook going to agree to a change in the algorithm that reduces its revenue but increases political harmony? <laughs> could, good, good luck with that, I would say.
0: Is it necessarily a good thing to, to, if, if you create a, a kind of consensus on everything in society?
1: Not necessarily, but at least there should be healthy debate and the debate should be based around truth, (laughs) right? So I think the amplification of disinformation is one of the biggest problems. If people don't live in the same
0: universe, they can't talk to each other at all. But you go in your writings like way, I mean, that's pretty bad and very concerning for us all as citizens, but you look at, at many more catastrophic applications of artificial intelligence
1: I'd like to keep separate the issue of lethal autonomous weapons, at least for the time being, from this issue about control, because I think they're often confused in the media because media, if they think about you know, risk, they immediately think, yeah, killer robots. And the risk is not likely to be from killer robots in the near future, because killer robots are probably going to be built with fairly simple minded AI, because militaries very much want to be able to control what the AI system does. So the AI systems in, in military robots are not going to wake up in the morning and say, oh, you know what, we need to, to go and invade Switzerland and let, let's all do that. That's not going to happen. But the risks coming from loss of control can be extremely subtle. you know. And I think social media, again, as a warning, You know, it happened over several years. And to some extent, we didn't realize that it was going on. And to some extent, we have lost control because despite the efforts of governments, these algorithms are protected by trillion-dollar multinational corporations. And they're continuing to run to this day, even though there's a fairly broad consensus that they shouldn't be running uh, and they're causing a lot of trouble.
0: So there are some examples of governments trying to get on top of it. And recently, last month, uh, the White House launched uh, an AI Bill of Rights, the European Commission unveiled a new proposal for an EU regulatory framework on artificial intelligence in April 2021. What do you think of these kind of measures? Do you think that they're going the right direction? Do you think that they could help to, to solve some of the problems you've been talking about?
1: So I think These efforts vary from very, very general principles, which are worthy, but don't translate directly into regulations or into behavior by corporations. But some of the EU AI Act proposals are very concrete and I think will have a big impact. For example, I think the current language includes an absolute ban on psychological manipulation of humans an absolute ban on impersonation of humans. So you always have a right to know whether you're interacting with a person or a machine, a ban on face recognition in a wide range of circumstances, a ban on other kinds of biometrics, for example, recognition of emotions that could be used. So, you know, if I'm having a bad day, I don't want that to influence my credit rating, for example, because then I'm basically subject to surveillance by my own laptop every day, which I don't want to be. So I think some of these things could have a big impact on both the behavior of corporations and how humans conceive of their own rights with respect to machines. Because I think that to a large extent, it's been a complete wild west and the tech industry has been very successful in heading off any kind of regulation. And so people have effectively no rights with respect to how machines treat them. And I think that may be coming to an end, which can only be a good thing.
0: And why do people think it's such a kind of important geopolitical question? Is it because um, just because of the economic potential you talked about at the beginning that this could kind of make or break our, our respective economies? Or is it because of some of the applications to war or to other things like that could be so dramatic?
1: I think it's both. And I think if one country or corporation develops general purpose AI and keeps it for themselves, that would be a a game changer for the, the global order. And certainly China has a clear intention to be the world leader in this area. My view is that general purpose AI is still some way off. Some of my colleagues actually think it's a lot closer than it used to be due to some of the developments, particularly with the large language models in the last few years. But I think we still need several breakthroughs in basic research. And I think those are likely to come from people who are free to work on, you know, these longer term questions about how to do AI, probably in the universities, you know, as was the case with many of the original breakthroughs that led to deep learning. The military question, I think, is in many ways much more immediate. We're already seeing lethal autonomous weapons being used on the battlefield, the U.N., has a report about them being used in Libya in 2020. And there are questions about what's happening in Ukraine. You know, Are these various types of drones that are being used fully autonomous, partially autonomous? We don't really know answers to those questions. My guess is they are not fully autonomous at the moment, except possibly some of the reconnaissance drones. But nobody doubts that fully autonomous weapons of various kinds could be you know strategically decisive in a lot of conflicts uh, and I just came from a meeting in Amsterdam where people are now talking about how do we ensure that these weapons which are coming are going to be used in ethical ways in ways that are compliant with the international humanitarian law but my concern is that even though the weapons as they get good enough you know particularly to make sure that they're not targeting, civilians instead of soldiers so accidental collateral damage maybe can be minimized they can be used ethically but the problem is will they be used ethically and if it's likely as i suspect and as many people in ai suspect they're going to turn into weapons of mass destruction because autonomous weapons by definition don't need humans to supervise each individual attack which means that one person by pressing a button can launch you know even a million weapons which would be enough to, you know, wipe out an entire city or or maybe a whole ethnic group within a country. And by creating these weapons and manufacturing them in very large numbers, we are actually reducing global security. And so the argument is that the ethics of their use actually is irrelevant, that creating this class of weapons and manufacturing them will have extremely deleterious effects to national security everywhere.
0: So we're running out of time unfortunately but it's been so fascinating talking to you maybe I can get you to come back on to talk specifically about autonomous weapons because I think that is something where people are becoming much more conscious of the dangers but also the technology is moving much faster than it is on general purpose AI it is now a kind of clear and present challenge to us all unfortunately i think we've run out of time for this it's been totally fascinating talking to you stuart we have one thing left to do on the podcast and that's our bookshelf section so obviously at the top of everyone's bookshelf should be human compatible ai and the problem of control by stuart where he goes into a lot of the things we've been talking about what's on your bookshelf at the moment stuart
1: well so i think if you're interested in the question of control right the idea that we may lose control to machines I think you have to read Nick Bostrom's book, Superintelligence, uh, which came out, I think, in 2014. And it's a very thorough analysis in the sense that he goes into all of the ways that people have basically said, we don't need to worry about this, picks their arguments apart and concludes that, yeah, we do need to worry about this. Maybe a slightly depressing read in that he doesn't come up with any solution to the problem. Max Tegmark has another book called Life 3.0 which is, I would say, a much more cheerful read. He points to some potential outcomes, if we can reach them, if we can figure out solutions to the control problem, that might be quite pleasant. So it's not all dystopia. There may be some utopias if we can find our way to get there. Um, And then Toby Ord has a book called The Precipice, which looks at the general question of how we think about existential risk, uh, you know, the risk of human extinction and not just AI, but natural sources of extinction, such as asteroids and supervolcanoes and pandemics, but then other man-made extinctions such as nuclear war and AI and synthetic biological pandemics. And Toby's a philosopher, so it's a very careful, thoughtful analysis. I think it's a good place to read. There are tons of science fiction dystopias that you can read, so I'm not going to suggest any of those, And I've spent some time trying to find science fiction, not exactly utopias, but at least describe a world with super intelligent AI that isn't a dystopia. And the one I found that is probably the best is uh, Ian Banks's culture novel. So there's a whole series of novels about a future civilization called the culture in which humans coexist alongside AI systems that are far, far more intelligent than the humans, but have obviously been designed with the principles of safe AI because they are, in some sense, purely beneficial to humans. They seem occasionally to be a little bit sarcastic about us, but they're basically uh, there to benefit the human race. So that seems to be a future where we have an amazing civilization. There is still the problem, and nobody, as far as I can tell, has solved the problem of what on earth are humans going to do when super intelligent AI can pretty much do everything that we
0: currently think of as work. It's been a, a real thrill talking to you, Stuart. We'll put links up to all the publications that you mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu/podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do head to whatever platform you use to download this podcast from and subscribe and while you're there if you want to give us a positive review and a five-star rating that will be wonderful because it will help other people find the podcast but for now from Stuart Russell and myself Mark Leonard it's goodbye. The researcher of this episode was Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Natalia Schwartz.